Welcome to Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. My name is Josh Lyons. I've been listening to Hardcore and Punk since 1995. I have book shows, put out a fanzine, run a record label, and now I'm doing a podcast. This is the Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 12. Today we got my buddy Ruben calling in from Honolulu, Hawaii. Obviously, Hardcore and Punk has taken him to some pretty cool places over the years. We're going to talk about all that real soon, but first I want to ask you first, how has the pandemic affected you? Hey, Josh. How's it going? Thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, Well, the pandemic combined with uh, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement has uh, had an effect on everybody, but specifically for me, I guess we can start first with the pandemic. Um, I, I was out in Boston with a bunch of the fellows getting ready to play a show. And, um, you know, as we know, everything got canceled and the rest is history. Now, did you end up stuck there for a little while, though? Or did you go back to where you were living currently right after that happened? Well, at that time, um, we weren't really sure what this thing was going to turn into, right? Um, some things had been canceled. Everything was starting to really get canceled. And I just had no idea what to really expect. Um, I mean, for them to cancel uh, a Dropkick Murphy show at House of Blues in Boston on St. Patrick's Day and also cancel the St. Patrick's Day parade in Boston, that's when I kind of realized that um, this thing was a lot bigger than I had first anticipated. Uh, I didn't realize that I would still be out of work even up until today. Um, And I certainly didn't realize the global health issues it would raise. So I think... um, at this point, I've kind of processed the situation, but I'm a little bit uncertain about where we're going to go from here. Yeah, I know. It's interesting you have mentioned that because my girlfriend and I took our son out for ice cream tonight. And we actually ran into one of the people I interviewed, uh, Jim Callahan, in a previous episode while we were out there tonight. And, you know, I felt bad asking him because he's a sound engineer and obviously everything's on pause for him right now. And, and that's pretty much what he relayed to me. So do you have any idea like when things will get back to quote unquote normal for you or do you think it's just going to be like a waiting game at this point? I mean, first of all, overnight, literally everyone I knew involved with music became unemployed. And that took a little while to set in. Um, as far as where we go from here, I really think it's speculation because every week someone is predicting something different and we just don't truly know. Uh, also, things seem to be changing week by week, if not day by day, with current events. Uh, as far as me personally, obviously I'm at the mercy of you know, whatever the powers that be are going to decide as far as the music goes. But as far as my day-to-day goes, uh, for the last few years, I've done the balancing act of being a business professional and a musician. So I'm hoping to pick up work again in the business world on July 1st. Um, What that looks like and whether we have to make any changes to the way we do business, uh, you know, I guess we'll have to wait and see and, and go day by day with that. Yeah, no, it sounds like it's definitely going to be a waiting game. And I'm sure you and I will talk more about the pandemic as well, as especially the Black Lives Matter uh, movement later in the interview, because we have, we have some current events to discuss. But I kind of like to backpedal a little bit now and, and talk a little bit about your discovery movement moment there and when you kind of first realized that you were listening to hardcore and punk and, and what made you kind of stick with this for so many years. Okay, well, let's unpack what you just asked me there, because there's a couple things uh, in there, a little bit different but related. Um I think my earliest memory of knowing that I was listening to punk was the first Clash album. Um, and I can, I can remember being on the bus and hearing 
White Man and Hammersmith Palais, and, and that was kind of it for me. Now, before then, I had heard and listened to what would be considered punk or hardcore music, but I didn't have the awareness that that's what I was listening to. Uh, you know, I heard that first Clash album at uh, 13, and that was the one that kind of opened my eyes to that there was things that weren't on the radio, right? Because up until then, it was pretty much just what I had heard on the radio, or if I was um, with some friends that had a, a, a boombox or let me borrow their Walkman or something like that. Yeah, it's interesting that The Clash would be one of the first bands you got into, because my sister had a pretty good vinyl collection when I was a kid, and a couple of the records that she let me borrow and tape you know, because she didn't live in the same house as us when I was in high school, uh, was that Clash, like, uh, they had, like, a discography album that had, like, four LPs on it. And I just remember my mind was blown hearing that stuff. Um, so what were you listening to prior to that, I guess? And, you know, how did you get involved with, with being more involved in the punk scene at that point? Well, I definitely didn't get involved in the punk scene at that point. Um, you know, again, I was 13, and uh, I was on vacation with the state, so everything was about the radio, and everything was about what staff member wanted to listen to their station. So I actually got a pretty diverse background of musical exposure at a young age because um, depending upon who was working, we'd hear WBLK or 103.3 The Fox or 97 Rock or uh, WYRK 106.5 was the country station. But my favorite and the one that kind of made me fall in love with music was a radio station in Buffalo, New York that we had called Oldies 104. And that station is where I got the exposure to things like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Roy Orbison, uh, Del Shannon, um, all, all, all the greats from the 50s and early 60s. And uh, also the thing is, is some of the other guests they had uh, contraband Walkmans at the time, which was a thing because we weren't really allowed to have music. So they would have uh, dubbed cassettes and, you know, things like Metallica and, and um, a lot of heavy metal, a lot of hip hop. Um, so I got a lot of exposure to things that I definitely would not have heard if I was just living with my parents at the time. Uh, and I had a, uh, a pretty hip relative who would he, he worked for Columbia and he would send me um, music from time to time. And uh, it's funny you mentioned that Clash discography because I got some kind of promo uh, set that was the first three full lengths. So it was the first one, give him enough rope and then uh, combat rock. And at the time, I wasn't really interested in anything but the first one. And, and later I learned to love all three of them. So I have to give credit to the Clash for being the first band that truly opened my eyes and blew my mind and made me realize that there was more going on in the world than what I was hearing on the radio at the time. Yeah, no, and it's interesting that you would say that, you know, you were more in interested in the first LP when you were younger, and as you got older, the other LPs kind of resonated more with you, because that's kind of how I am now. Like, I, I never gave those those latter LPs a chance until more recent years. Um, but now, obviously, their whole discography is something that really, really, you know, hits me hard. Um, but I guess kind of kind of shifting gears a little bit and kind of fast-forwarding a little bit. Um, so... At what point did you get more involved in actually like going to punk shows and getting involved with like the punk scene and stuff like that? Oh, that's a good question. I have to think about that for a second. Um, well, it's interesting because again, my involvement at first wasn't shows. I would have to say um, it was these dinosaur shops called record stores, and Buffalo was blessed with many, many really cool record stores. So I would, um, I was a paper boy. 
and I would save my, my money from delivering the Buffalo news and hop on the Metro bus and go to different record stores and just, just look and see what caught my eyes and, you know, places like home of the hits and new world and worldwide and record theater, which was a, a, a great chain of stores uh, from Buffalo and all, all over the country, really. Um, so I, I would say that was my first involvement um, combined with uh, skateboarding culture and um, yeah, I didn't really go. I, didn't, I, I was listening to the music for a strong two, three years before I went to my first show. And um, I guess I started going to shows based on seeing the flyers up on the street, which was the original social media promotion or um, the bulletin boards at the record stores uh, like Discovery Records or Home of the Hits bulletin boards. I mean, you'd have to go to those places to see what was happening in, you know, in your, in your community. Yeah, no, I really miss those days. I remember, you know, the first time I went to a Buffalo show, what I guess it was actually the second time I went to a Buffalo show is uh, the Slugfest reunion. And we caught the bus to Buffalo from Rochester. And we went up there early and we hung out at Home of the Hits for a little while. Um, but even going back to Rochester, you're talking about like there being flyers. I remember the old record archive on, on Mount Hope Ave here. It was, it was like so cool to go there and just see the, the outside completely covered in flyers. And you would always know like what show was coming up and like, you know, you would take note to see which ones and you could take the handbills and stuff like that. Um, but do you have any memories from like the first couple of shows you went to at this point? Yeah. Uh, and just touching on what you said, I always appreciated you guys because you would drive out and, and come to house shows and put posters up for Rochester shows in Buffalo. And at the time, you know, that, that would be the only way we would even hear about stuff. Also, when I was real young, um, still in high school, I had, um, I guess what you would call an unpaid internship doing street team for ESI, which is where um, I listened to the Chris Ring episode. He's a good buddy of mine, and he, he began there as well. So basically what that was is, is that we would put up the posters, and once in a while I'd get a guest list spot or i get to keep some posters, which for a teenager – um, you know, being able to go to a show at Showplace Theater on the guest list when you're 16 and finding out about it before all your friends did because it was your job to put the posters up. That was a pretty great deal. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of the first shows that I went to were at places like VFW Halls, Mercury Theater, Showplace. Um, for sure, those, those types of things. Yeah, that's cool. If I remember correctly, I think the first time you and I actually met each other was at was in Only on New York, and, and we'll get to that soon. Obviously, with one of your one of your early bands that you played in. Um, but speaking of that, uh, were you already playing music at this point? I guess when did you first start playing music? Let's see. Um, I think that'd be about fifteen. So my dad had an acoustic um, in the house grow, growing up, and I never really picked it up until about age fifteen. So I started playing a few chords and, you know, just, just doing the stuff that most kids try to do when they first pick up an instrument and playing along to my favorite records and whatnot. Um, and I didn't really switch to bass. It was more a necessity because some guys in the neighborhood needed a bass player to jam with. So that's kind of how it went back then. Um, you know, you got together with, with the kids in the neighborhood, uh, whoever had the cool mom and dad or parent that would let you jam in the garage or basement or you know that kind of thing or you have to skip school and play in someone's basement and be done before they get home <laughs> yeah so i guess speaking of like your music playing career uh what bands have you played with then uh well my first band uh, was called alleyway infantry and i was 16 years old uh, that i guess that would be where we met in oleand um because i believe that's the, the one of the few yeah that, that that has to be it right 
Because how, how old were you? You were like 17 or 16? Yeah, I would have been around 17, I think. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it was probably at Ryan Capaletti's house afterwards. Because I remember one night, I think Strong Intention played there. And there was like legitimately like 30 to 50 people, it seemed like, sleeping over at his house that night. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, it definitely was that because I remember, um, I don't even know if it's still this way or not, but when I got my license, I couldn't drive after nine. So I remember we had to get my buddy Josh Weiser, who also had a truck, a pickup truck, so we could put our gear in it. And he was allowed to drive past nine so we could actually go go and do the, do the show. But yeah, Ryan Capaletti, he was, uh, he was pretty, pretty important for the only unseen as far as booking a lot of shows at the... Uh, Legion Hall, and then later at, at his punk house. And um, I know after the punk house, there was a lot of different people who were promoting at different venues. And don't ask me to remember all of them, but I, I have a lot of fond memories from, from that era in the Southern Tier. Yeah, no, I definitely do as well. So I guess you were playing in Alleyway Infantry at that time. I'm not sure if you want to touch on that band at all anymore, but, but I know after that came the band Ambulance Drunk, too. Yeah, well, Alleyway Infantry was pretty important uh, because it was our first band, and we were all still in high school so we were kind of putting the pieces together figuring out how to play how to practice uh and it was very important for us because that's where we met doug white at washington studio where we went to make our cassette demo um and that kind of began a lifelong relationship with doug uh and it kind of taught us the uh, diy ethos of not you know also by necessity because nobody wanted to fuck with us so we would do our own flyers get ourselves on our own shows uh, we, we made our own demo uh, at a company called ESP, which is a, at the time was a local um, media manufacturing company that uh, a lot of people from the music scene have worked at. And I later on worked at. Um, and also we had to get ourselves booked. So I remember our first time playing a club show. I got us booked at the Continental. And at the time there wasn't, you know, MySpace or Facebook. So I had to call up the booker you know, pretty much charm our way in. And then I remember going to play there and they didn't want to let us in because we weren't of legal age. And it became this whole, whole ordeal where we got booked, but we weren't going to be allowed to play. So that's the first night that I met uh, another friend of mine who I still love to this day, Jesse. And he was working at the Continental and he smoothed it out for us, just told us we couldn't drink. And interesting, interesting fact about that first club show ever that I played is the sound man was Jay Galvin. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Uh, obviously, I'm sure you've heard a couple episodes now, and, and Jay's come up a lot of times, and, and I think you kind of, as a couple other people did, suggested that I interview him, and, and it would be great to get him on a future episode, because obviously, as we both know, he's got a, a, a pretty good history as far as Buffalo music's concerned. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's a, he's a, Jay's a legend in the game, and you definitely have to have him on your podcast. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so I don't know if there's anything else you want, want to add to that LA Infantry or if you want to uh, touch on Ambulance Drunk for a minute then. So yeah, Ambulance Drunk was really a fill-in thing. Um, they, they were, I guess, what you would call uh, a street punk band. So they had Oi influence and, and punk influence as well. And they were based out of the Southern Tier. Um, their original bass player, uh, Chris, had passed away, rest in peace. And... Um, I had become buddies with those guys because I was booking a lot of shows in the University Heights uh, on Lisbon Street and Minnesota Street, and I would have them come play. And they had um, a, a, just a wonderful soul who was playing bass, who is also unfortunately no longer with us, named Will. And, uh, you know, God bless him. He was an incredible human being. And um, 
I have to really give him a lot of credit because he's he's the first guy from the scene that sat me down and really kind of told me to respect my playing and taught me some basic scales and showed me the songs so that I could take over his position. Um, and and I, I treasure that time to this day. Uh, I have to give Will a lot of credit. So I did a few shows with them. And to be honest with you, I don't really remember what the hell happened, but I haven't seen or talked to any of those guys in a long time. Um, I hope they're all doing well. And yeah, that was a fun little stint for me playing with those guys. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting that you would be playing in like an Oi Street Punk band because I remember you you always kind of hyping up the Hudson Falcons to me back then too. And then I guess you ended up playing with them for a little bit as well, right? Yeah, so there again, you know, you know as much as I love Buffalo, um, at that time, if you were underage, the clubs in Buffalo really weren't trying to let you in. So the Southern Tier had this big youth scene. And I met those guys at a taco shop in Cuba, New York, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but they had a, a nice scene there for a while. The shout out to the decoys and, and Alan, uh, who's like a power lifter now. I see him at the gym; he's a beast. And um, we played with Hudson Falcons there. Alleyway Infantry did, and also the Stranded, my boy Matt's band. Uh, and that's how I first met those guys. And I ended up um, filling in for some shows with them, and then joined the band full time for a while. And Hudson Falcons was a phenomenal experience for me. Yeah. And, you know, as a side note, I think that's one thing that's always been interesting to me about you is is like you, you know, you have an interest in both hardcore and punk and definitely oi. And you don't see that with as many people. Like sometimes people will just be into one or the other. And, and I've always really respected the fact that you're into like diverse styles of music, which we'll obviously get to that a little bit more later in the interview as well. Yeah. I mean, it's all rebel culture. Right. And um, I had to really get out of Buffalo to realize how boxed in and segregated the quote unquote underground music scene is. Um, and the Falcons was great. Uh, not only because we, we did a lot of touring, played a lot of shows. I was 18, you know, Mark, I never had to drive. We were in an RV. We were on GMM, which was a great American label at the time. And I got to really cut my chops and, and learn how to be a headlining act and, um, learn how to play a lot, and um, I got to see the whole country, and that's where I first met uh, Benny, who um, was in the Brass Knuckle Boys from Lafayette, Indiana, and would later go on to do Chosen Ones with me, and we made a lot of great friendships during that time, specifically with one of the most criminally underrated bands of all time, and that's the GC5 out of Cleveland. Um, the highlight with the Falcons for me has got to be playing the beer Olympics down in Atlanta, which, you know, now the fest scene is pretty much everything. And that's what everyone kind of goes to. But at that time, I think it was like 2000 or 2099 or 2001, somewhere in there. I can't remember. But, uh, you know, having a two day fest of punk and oi and hardcore bands was like this unbelievable thing, you know? Yeah, definitely. I, I didn't really get a chance to go to as many of the punk fests back then, but I definitely went to my share of hardcore fests. And, and even back then, you only had like like maybe three or four hardcore fests in the U.S. And now, obviously, it seems like almost every city has one. But back then, it was really cool because, you know, you could spend the weekend going to see all your favorite bands. I mean, there was tons of distros there, people selling zines, you know, and that's where I met some of my best friends, you know. So I definitely have a lot of fond memories of going to a lot of festivals back then. Yeah, and Beer, Beer Olympics was my favorite, probably just because of my age and all the great bands that played. Um, and, you know, at the time, being being into punk and, and oi made you an outcast in the Buffalo hardcore scene. And being into hardcore, 
kind of major in outcast in the punk scene. So I, I always just really appreciated getting out of Buffalo at that time and seeing that there was a lot more to the world, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I think the, the outcast for being in a different styles of music was kind of the same here too. Like I, I think, as you know, I, I grew up more like in the, in the punk hardcore scene, but as I got older, I got more into like the, the more like hardcore stuff. And, and I always still kind of kept those bands in the back of my head, but it was just weird to me how everything was kind of segregated for lack of a better word. Um, but I guess jumping up just a little bit, you were talking about like the university Heights, uh, Buffalo area area. And I remember when you were living there, uh, you were playing in a band called the fallen. So uh, talk about that experience a little bit. Yeah, that was, uh, that was kind of at the time there was like the clockers, which are great guys. And they've been, they've been around forever. I love those guys. Uh, great band. But the fallen was, was, was a band that did, um, the, the punk annoy thing for a while. And they had a bunch of, bunch of members i think i played bass after kevin um who was in uh wrong direction and ocd bombers in the control he he left and i can't remember if i played next or matt masako but pretty much everyone we know had a stint in it and it was it was more just like you know our little squad of guys at the time and and us having a lot of fun playing playing blitz blitz and cox bar influence kind of stuff um i think my best memory of that one there's 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 two two great stories and probably the best one that's my favorite is for our first uh weekend that we were doing out of town that i was playing with we were in my friend bill langer's van which his van could have its own podcast and you'd have to interview him about that uh but you know typical thing we packed the van we got the gear in there we got all the merch and you know i'm a young guy and low man on the totem pole so i'm in the back kind of packed between a guitar cabinet and a box of merch and we're hitting the 33 uh, off of Main Street by Humboldt. And I don't know what happens. You know, driver hits the brakes or something like that. But next thing I know, the back door of the van opens. And I, I do like a, a Rodney Dangerfield triple Lindy off and land on the fucking highway. And that's, to make matters worse, I got a box of merch coming right from my head and a car coming at me right from behind. Uh, and that's one of those stories where, you know, at the time, it's kind of shocking to think about now, but we, I just put the stuff back in the van and went to the show. It's all part of getting to the show. The show must go on. And uh, that, that's a fun one to look back on. And my, probably my second favorite memory of playing with that band is a show that I booked at a, a bar called Anacones, which, you know, at the time was not having shows. It was not a place for shows. It was just a bar on the East side that a lot of people hung out at because, you could play pool for 50 cents and they had some great stuff on the jukebox and it was open till 4 a.m. 365, 24 seven fantastic roast beef sandwiches. Shout out to JJ, the bartender. And, um, so we did a gig there with UV rays, uh, which is Kevin from the dance who I love. Um, actually just got to see him not too long ago at punk rock bowling out in Vegas. I got to meet his son, which was real nice. And anyway, I just have this vivid memory of playing new age by blitz and, uh, some kids shotgunning an entire pitcher of beer. Uh, you know, while I'm playing they're they're pouring the beer into my mouth. And, you know, when, when you're a kid drinking, you know, drinking a pitcher of beer, playing new age at Anacones, it doesn't really get much better than that. You know, <laughs> you know, one of the, one of the things about doing these these uh, phone interviews is that you can't see the big smile on my face when you tell these stories. Um, but yeah, definitely shout out to Kevin Wilcox. I, I've already talked to him about getting him on a future episode because 
again, like while this has been mainly covering hardcore for, I think for you and I, hardcore and punk are one of the same, like you said, it's all rebel culture. And, and Kevin was definitely one of the great dudes that I met early on in the scene, you know, shout out to Kevin, shout out to Pat Dent, shout out to James, whatever planet he's living on these days. I got a lot of love for those guys. Um, yeah, I mean, right, like hard, like hardcore short for hardcore punk, and we can get into the whole different ideology and mentality of subcategories. I, I go the Lemmy route. There's music I like, and there's music I don't like. And, um, you know, uh, Buffalo is a very heavy town. A lot of people get into hardcore from metal, where I got into it from punk. But I, I'm just not, I'm not down with all the boxes and barriers and slogans and categorizing, you know. I'm just not with that. There's stuff I like, there's stuff I don't like. That's it. You know, I 100% agree with you. And, you know, I guess in regards to music that we both like and coming from hardcore and punk, I've always envied you for all the experiences that you've had with Agnostic Front. Now, obviously, we'll get to talking about your touring history a little bit later in the interview. But first of all, uh, kind of give me an experience of what it was like filling in with them on that Canadian tour back Well, that in the day. was surreal. So um, just to kind of lay the foundation for that, at the time, I was not playing in the phone, and I was doing Hudson Falcons full-time, but I was also roading for AF full-time, doing merch and a lot of driving and just a lot of learning, actually. But So I was pretty much on the road full-time. And that was another thing, opportunity out of necessity. Um, there were some immigration issues and right place at the right time. For me, uh, I got asked to fill in on about three and a half hours notice. And lucky for me, I had been doing so much playing um, with the Falcons and I was already familiar with the songs and more importantly, the set list and the way that they transitioned from being on the tour, that it was just this wonderful opportunity. Me and a guy, uh, Rob from, from Queens, shout out to uh, everyone in Elmont, Queens. Um, we, we split duties and we did uh, Toronto, Quebec, Montreal, Hamilton in London, if my memory serves me correct. And that was a, that was a surreal experience, uh, something I'll cherish forever. And that was actually, um, Toronto was the first show I got to meet my boy, Psycho Dave. Shout out to Psycho Dave and the Northern Hit Squad. If anyone hasn't heard them, they definitely need to check them out. But yeah, that, I mean, I don't remember how old I was. I think I was like 20 years old or 19 years old or something like that. But I remember getting a bunch of quarters and going to the payphone because long distance was expensive. I didn't have a cell phone. And I called, I called my best friend pub and I said, Hey man, I'm going to be playing with AF. And he drove up with some of the guys and, uh, yeah, you know, you can't see the smile on my face right now, but it, that, that was, that was a real moment for me. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, I think we could probably talk this entire podcast about agnostic front. Cause I'm sure it's one of both of our favorite bands. And again, I've always been envious of, of all the experience you've had with all those guys and, you know, all the other bands you've gotten to tour with, which again, we'll get to a little bit later. Um, but one of the interesting things for me about doing these these interviews is especially the people like you who have such a prolific, you know, list of bands you've played with is sometimes there'll be bands you played with that I'm not really as familiar with. And the next couple of bands I'm, I'm not really as familiar with, honestly. So kind of give me the background story on, on Amy Ryan and the Opera. Okay, so again, to lay a little foundation, there was a, a band in Buffalo that used to play Showplace that I used to go see called Mexican Session. And one of the horn players in that band was a dear friend of mine named Tad, uh, Big Up Tad. And um, he was playing with this other group and they were looking for a bass player. And I don't know why they picked me to be their bass player because I was probably the least qualified of anyone that applied. But 
um, they did. And that was a fantastic experience for me. Um, it really took me outside of my comfort zone musically. It forced me to practice it, And it was the first time that I had played in any band that would be outside of the punk and hardcore world. And I was at that time from being on the road, like 11 months out of the year between Falcons and AF, I was kind of on punk and hardcore culture auto drive. And it really kind of made me take a step back and, you know, um, reevaluate and I guess the exposure, you know, cause a lot of these guys were a lot better than me musically. They were all in college, many of them for performance degrees. Um, and that band had a guitar player, an organ player, a drummer, a singer, a three piece horn section. I mean, there was a lot going on with that band. Um, and the practicing schedule was, was really serious. I mean, we were like twice a week. They all lived in a house and, um, I got to do a lot of regional shows with them, a lot of stuff that I had never really ever even thought I would do, um, you know, as far as venues and playing with other kinds of bands and having the exposure. But um, yeah, Amy was a singer and she uh, ended up marrying Griff, who was the sax player and they have a beautiful family and they're both living life in Syracuse and Matt Felsky, um, who we'll get into later because he's actually the catalyst for, for the band I did with Queese. Um, he was a phenomenal legend. He, Felsky's a legend. He, he is one of the best musicians I've ever heard out of Buffalo. And um, playing with him was, was incredible. Uh, we had a guy named Christian that played guitar. Um, there was a bunch of guys that played, uh, and it, that, that, and their house was in the university Heights. So it kind of, it kind of crossed over with the Tyler street and the Lisbon's and the Custer's and, um, that, that whole era. Kind of on a related topic. And, you know, it's something that I'll, I'll get to later in the interview because I have a couple questions regarding it, but it sounds like you have, you know, really high regard for all the people that you've played with and you, and you've built some really good solid bonds with these people in the scene over the years. And that's something I think to really to really look up to and, and respect that you've been able to do something like that. Well, I'm very lucky. Um, I'm very lucky in the sense that for the most part, with the exception of one person who I'm not going to name, uh, I'm, I'm cool with everyone I've ever played in a band with or musically. And that says a lot to that says a lot, lot about their patience <laughs> and also everyone's ability to. Uh, mature and grow. Um, some people, you know, like being in a band is like a relationship. And sometimes when you break up, you're not cool right away and it takes time and dust has to settle and people need to be at, at different places in their life to uh, reconcile. But um, my, my one advice I'll say to anyone in a band is that be real careful how you weigh your personal relationship with the people you play with because it will come out in your music. Um, and if everyone is on the same page with a mutual respect, you know, with the same kind of mission, that is going to have an undeniable force compared to just people getting together, you know, because they're good musicians, you know, you have to have that heart and, and socialization element. I, I feel. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. I mean, obviously, I've never really played in a band. I mean, you know, I played a couple of crappy bands back in the day, but it always seemed like the best bands were the ones that were kind of like a family and, and they really got along and they hung out outside of the band too. Um, but I guess shifting gears just a little bit here, 
uh, another band that I'm not really as familiar with uh, that you were in was uh, Payback Volkers. So uh, what okay, do you think about so that band? Okay, so the band was just called Payback. Uh, Volkers is a bowling alley that we that we did a show at. Oh. Um, <laughs> but what what I was going to say about that is now there's a lot of bands. It's 2020, right? So there's a lot of bands that have the same name. Um, at that time, we were unaware of another band. And I don't know if they were any aware of us. We didn't play that many shows. I would say less than 10 shows. But what I remember about that band that was um, stands out in my mind is that it was the same kind of deal where no one wanted to have us play. So we kind of did our own thing. We would play Tudor Lounge and, you know, uh, Volkers, which is a, a, a Buffalo institution. It's a, it's an all-night bowling alley. And I, I've had a lot of fun there throughout the years. But also that got me to the music mall because we rehearsed there. Our drummer was Ranger from Envy. And for I'm not I don't remember the reasoning behind it, but he had access to the space there. And, you know, the music mall was one of the only places for bands to practice, much like Discovery Records and the Sidway building. So just going to a place like that at a young age, it exposes you to local local community because, I you know, I don't remember how many rooms that were there, 20 something rooms, if not more. Um, but they're all filled, usually double, triple filled with bands and. Um, you, you really start to see that there's a culture and a community out there. We have something similar like that here. I think it's called Cosmic Jams. Um, again, I've never really played in a band, but I've tried a couple times. And the last time I really tried to play in bands was like 2004, 2006, around that time. And, you know, Jim, Jim who ended up playing on Borrowed Time, and me, we, we tried to do a couple bands there. And, and every time we'd go there to practice, you know, you'd have like, a, I'm not going to name all the bands because there's so many local bands. We pretty much think of any local hardcore band. And they were most of them are probably practicing there at one point in time. So it's cool that you had that kind of community aspect where you could kind of, you know, feed off of each other's ideas and stuff like that with the other bands. Yeah, for me, I don't know if it was feeding off of ideas with the other bands as much as it was just awareness. And uh, like I said, this was for the most part um, pre-internet, really. So just having awareness and the bulletin board at the Music Mall, um, you know, this is what these were essential tools for, for all kinds of scenes. So I guess around, I'm not sure the exact year, but the years that I remember seeing, seeing Infamous was like 2005, 2006. Um, and that, that kind of shifted into more of like a, a, like a heavy hardcore, like almost like New York hardcore style sound that you were doing there. Um, so what was that experience well, like for you? Well, yeah, you're going to be better with the years than me. Um, so I think, interestingly enough, that, that ties into to, uh, Amy Ryan and the operatives. Um, yeah, so Joe and I didn't like each other. We were going to fight at Showplace, and we ended up just becoming friends, um, which was cool. And he connected me uh, with my boxing trainer and dear friend, Don Patterson, and because uh, he had fought at the same gym. So that's kind of how we established a friendship. And we were spending some time together, and I wanted to do a hardcore band because I was doing uh, the operatives thing. And... I got him, I thought he'd be a good front man. So we went to UB uh, North to the studio there where um, Felsky had a rehearsal space, the drummer and Sweeper came with us and he played guitar and I played bass and uh, Joe began singing. And Matt, I think that was, you know, he, he was like a jazz and a reggae and, a, and you know, a real, a real musician, a real serious guy. And he jammed with us once or twice, and then that was a wrap. But that's kind of how the concept uh, started. And we went through 
a couple guitar players, um, Slick Money, which some people, we used to call him that after the MOP song. But now I think people know him as Josh. He's a tattoo artist, great guy. And then we had a kid, Danny Fresh. And uh, then, we, then Galvin actually played with us for a while, too. Um, and yeah, I don't know if that band was so much New York hardcore as it was just heavier and, and um, just more angry. Um, but yeah, that, that was, that was definitely an interesting time for Buffalo as well. Yeah. And it's cool. You would mention the MLP reference. Cause I, I know you and I have always talked about hip hop over the years and I'm, and I'm sure that we'll get to, you know, more of the varied styles of music that you're into and that you're doing now later. But again, that's one thing that I've always liked about you is that you and I could talk about, you know, more than one style of music and, and that we both kind of came from like different yeah, cultures, you know, that rebel culture. And, you know, I know you were hooping a lot back in the day. Um, and you know, one thing that people like to be revisionists and romanticize is how punk is this like open and accepting an environment, which in a lot of ways it is, but in a lot of ways it's also not. It's open and accepting if you fit the criteria of this box that the supposed mover and shaker says. So people like you and I, um, we don't ask permission and we just do our thing. And that's why I think we clicked at an early age, you know? Definitely. And I think that, you know, I think, that, and I think that what you're saying there kind of, like makes me understand why hip hop and hardcore are so similar. Like obviously sonically they're not similar at all, but like the ideas and you know the the rebelling against the system things are kind of similar with both. I mean obviously now some of the hip hop that's coming out is more just like fashion and and money and stuff like that. But like you go back to the roots, like I feel like early hip hop is kind of similar to early punk in that in that well, way. Well, yeah. Know? So at the time we met, it was just the '80s and '90s. There wasn't even the 2000s yet. And for me. um I, I had had awareness of hip hop and punk and skateboarding culture um, before I knew that it was called that. Um, my, my, my cousin is a pretty accomplished photographer and his book was in my mom's closet when I was a kid, Fuck You Heroes, um, which for those that don't know is a collection of Dogtown and Def Jam and a lot of the early punk and hardcore uh, iconic images. So I saw that at a very young age before I was even really old enough to understand what I was seeing. So it, it, it made sense to me that there was a connection between hip hop and punk and skateboarding. And again, rebel culture stuff that was against the grain. Um, and it wasn't until many years later that I realized that a lot of those images were um, icons and pioneers of the culture. Yeah, no, that's interesting because we used to have, uh, I, I think it was local. I don't think they had one in Buffalo, but there was like a, a store called Village Green Bookstore uh, years ago. And in like the mid to late 90s, uh, when I was first getting into punk, um, myself and a couple of friends of mine, we would go there after school and just kind of look through the books and the magazines. And that was definitely one that was there. And there was a couple other ones too, but it was always just cool. And I still love that now. Like I have the band in DC book and I, and I try to collect as many hardcore books as I can because it's just so cool. To, you know, to go back and look at all those old photos and look and look, read all those old stories of about like before we were into this kind of stuff, and just to think about what it was like oh, back absolutely. then, you know, and the fact that it was a kid doing it before Photoshop, you know, at best there was a Kinkos, but the thing, so the DIY entrepreneurial spirit was really there, and sadly, I had a gigantic zine collection, zine and flyer collection that got lost to a basement flood. So if there's anybody out there that has zines or old show flyers or a trunk of memorabilia, put it on some cinder blocks and pallets. Better yet, contact me. I'll set you up with someone who could digitize everything. 
because we really we really need to archive as much of that DIY stuff as possible. Yeah, and I guess speaking of digitizing stuff, I don't want to get too off topic, but just in case I forget, um, I know I know you're kind of helping somebody work on a book from the Buffalo scene. Do you want to talk about that sure. real quick? Um, we got to big up Mark Miller, who is a New York City uh, downstater that came to Buffalo and stayed, and we're very lucky because he's been consistently taking photographs of shows his entire time here, and uh, I really just felt like his his resume of work really needs to be solidified. So um, with the help of my buddy, Evan, uh, and with Busky overseeing it, um, the four of us are going to be putting out a, uh, well, I'm putting it out, but the four of us are the team. Uh, we're going to be putting out the HMNI, which stands for Hello My Name Is, which is Mark Zine. And we're going to be scanning all of his zines and having uh, a companion zine anthology for a pre-order special for the book. And it's going to be a photography book. Now, I want to make this very clear to everyone listening. This is not an all-encompassing representation of Buffalo. This is simply a best of work that Mark has taken. So if we don't put your band in or we neglect this one show, I don't want to hear <laughs> it because that's not our mission. I'm just highlighting the best work that Mark's done. Mark's definitely somebody I want to get on an oh, episode. Absolutely. Him and I have talked about it a little bit. I'm not exactly sure of the date yet. Yeah. Yeah, no, but he's definitely somebody I, I want to get on. Cut you off there. No, you're absolutely. fine. Absolutely. Mark, 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 even though he's a New York guy, he's a Buffalo guy and he's a Buffalo legend. And uh, big up, big up Mark Miller. Um, got nothing but love and respect for that guy. Yeah. So I guess kind of getting back to the timeline, um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add to, to the infamous, or if you remember, I guess there's, there's kind of one funny uh, borrowed time story. Yeah, so that, that like right around this time, well. What, well, one thing about infamous that, that I always appreciated was um, again, no, no one wanted anything to do with us in, in the Buffalo scene. I think we were keeping it a little bit too real at the time. And uh, we kind of just created our own thing. And we decided because we all were listening to hip hop to incorporate some of that, into what we were doing, whether it was using our following to expose uh, a local rapper that we wanted to give some attention to, or having a hip hop DJ um, play music in between sets uh, for our shows. I, I, I think that was one of the, one of the positive contributions that we had um, as well as exposing me to other types of bands and people that I never would have had exposure to and specifically in Rochester because we did really good in Rochester. We had a lot of fun playing a lot of shows at Montage and other places and, you know, bands like Borrowed Time, which I always consider just to be a brother band, had a lot of fun with those guys. And it's funny because when you asked me who I played with, I had to really think about it. And I, I know that I did play with them at Mohawk once filling in. And I have this vivid memory of Brendan trying to show me the riffs. And at the time I was just pretty much, I, I couldn't really play that like technical triplet metal feel. Um, I was pretty much just all punk or hardcore and it was just mind blowing to me. So I don't, I don't know how I managed to do that one, but yeah, I, I got a lot of love for that era and all eras of Rochester, but specifically that era um, and, and borrowed time. Um, I like that you were talking about Buffalo hip hop too. Obviously we'll get to that in a little bit as well. Um, so the next band that you were in, was uh, Face the Panic, and it's kind of a personal goal of mine to end up getting, obviously, most of the, that band on this podcast at one point or another. 
So just kind of break down your experiences from that band from your your, oh, pers- yeah. your personal level. Well, I'm sure all those guys would love to come on the podcast. Um, all of them are veterans with a lot of experience. I know you've already had Mike, and well, as we all know, he required two episodes. But um, yeah, so face the panic. Interesting experience for me. Only band I've ever actually been kicked out of. Uh, but I understand why, and I probably would have kicked me out too. But that that was cool because I was the youngest, and everyone had more experience than me, and it kind of forced me to step my game up. And it kind of, um, you know, we were practicing at Discovery Records, which was cool at the time because I had only ever been to the record store or seen shows there. So I, I again, like the Music Mall, uh, it was another one of these hubs of of the community because there were all these bands practicing there. Um, and I was playing with sweeper and Aaron who are just ridiculous guitar player, guitar players. I mean, they're both monsters in their own right. And Jay was the singer. And, um, yeah, our first show was stillborn fest with Hatebreed and sick of it all and sub zero and full blown chaos. And that was that sold out show play show. So that was, that was a lot of fun. And, we, we, we did some touring, went out to California and played in Tijuana, uh, which was a wild and crazy night. And um, yeah, you know, I, I only played in about the first year and a half of that band. But looking back now, I'm, I'm, it's all good, fond memories. And I'm happy to say that I'm still friends with everyone in the band today. Even, even my replacement, Nick. Shout out to Nick Gonzalez. It's obviously I'm envious of the experience that you got to have touring with that band, but it's also good to see that, you know, you're, you're friends with those guys after, you know, everything. Um, so now that band was on Reaper records and uh, the last band that I saw you playing in actually was the chosen ones. And if I'm not mistaken, chosen ones did some stuff with Reaper as well too, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I think, um, you know, for the record, I always called them Rob. I don't know what this Rob Bob stuff is, but, Rob put out the, the, the first um, CD, EP, or whatever the jargon is. I'm sure Jeffers is going to correct me and say it's a, whatever the fuck it is. But he put out the first thing, and then Patrick put out the full length. Uh, so that was the first time that I really started having a relationship with Patrick, and big up to Patrick. Um, and he, he really, Patrick was really very helpful with getting face the panic, some shows and exposure and putting out our record. Um, and later on when chosen ones started rolling, uh, him and Vogel approached me and he wanted to put out our stuff and Vogel was going to manage us. Um, at the time, I, uh, I don't remember what happened with Scott being our manager. That never happened, but he definitely was our friend and he definitely was a, a, a great friend of the band and, both those guys were instrumental in helping Chosen Ones and me personally grow and develop. Yeah, and it's interesting you have mentioned Vogel. Um, I guess this is my first time putting this on air, but I don't think it will come as any surprise to anyone that I'm going to have Scott on an episode pretty soon. Um, and obviously, you know, his discography speaks for itself. So, you know, even though he didn't end up officially manage you guys, it's still that he at least took an interest in your band. And he, he may not have technically been our manager, but he definitely helped us get shows. He definitely pushed us. You know, he answered the, the phone if I had a question. And him and Patrick, the, the whole Reaper team, Busky, Guav, um, Mark, everyone at that time really was, was pivotal in, in helping the band and me personally succeed. 
Um, and the interesting thing is, is that Reaper wasn't really logically the best label for us to be on because we were a punk band and people that were typical followers of Reaper really weren't interested in our band. But the team was, was just, the love was undeniable and, and I'm a big people person. Uh, so the fact that anyone believed with a, believed in us, let alone people that were not really from the same genre, although the same culture, because the sound was different, right? Um, but yeah, um, I think we actually brought a lot of punk and, punk and skin attention to Reaper, which I think was a nice benefit because I'm always about merging merging the genres, you know. I think that anyone who's been listening to this interview now kind of knows that you're you're into a lot of different aspects of the culture. Um, so did you get a lot of chances to tour with Chosen yeah, One? So Chosen yeah. One started as a laundry jam. Uh, Benny, who was in Brass Knuckle Boys out of Lafayette, Indiana, phenomenal band. He had joined Hudson Falcons and was playing with them when I kind of met those guys and they had played 33 Tyler and also at the uh, taco shop in Cuba. And I ended up filling in in Albany at Valentine's um, with Blood and Whiskey from Ireland and uh, some other bands. I want to say Murderer's Row. Shout out to Riley. Nothing but love for, for the Troy godfather of hardcore. Um, but anyway, long story short, Benny moved to Buffalo. And he would come over to my house and do laundry. And I, and I think I remember telling him, yeah, you could do laundry, but you got to play drums and jam with me while you're doing the laundry. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's how chosen one started the two of us. And we put out a three song demo, um, which was a CD and Jay Galvin did the artwork for that. And we had not played live yet. And then we put out another self released CD EP which was five songs and that featured Galvin and um, Neil, our boy Neil on guitar, his second guitar player. And that was recorded at Watchmen. And that was also, we made that ourselves DIY at ESP. And that was kind of an interesting experience because I had worked there, you know, several years earlier as an employee. And now I was going there to pick up my own band CDs. And it was a very empowering time because you know, you, people, bands were selling a lot of CDs, right? Like, I think Napster was around, but CD was still the predominant format. So, and gas wasn't what it was expense-wise. So you can go and tour, and even if your guarantees were very small or no guarantees, the, the CD money was enough to keep you going. So um, at that point, that CD EP is where Patrick enters the picture and he has us re-record three songs that had come out on the two demos self-produced before, plus a Stiff Little Fingers cover, and that came out as a Reaper 7-inch. And then we did a bunch of comp tracks, and then the Reaper full-length came out. Um, and we did get the chance to play a ton of regional shows supporting all of our favorites. Um, we transitioned a nice local following into headlining our own shows instead of opening for the nationals and just kind of keeping the, the, the lion's share of the money. And that way we could subsidize playing the regional shows where we really weren't getting paid anything and, you know, cover airfare to go to Arizona and California. And we got real lucky. We got to do some shows with Rancid and um, 
We got to do some big shows at Town Ballroom with House of Pain and a bunch of outdoor festival radio rock shows, which really helped the band and put us, it made us step our game up because we went from playing in front of a couple hundred people and then maybe we're doing a couple thousand with Rancid and then we're doing 8,500 at a radio, uh, a radio fest. And that, that was quite nice to achieve that success on our own especially considering, again, it was by necessity where in the beginning we had to do it all ourselves because no one really wanted to mess with us. Um, so, yeah, you know, Chosen Ones was a phenomenal experience for me. I got nothing but love for those guys. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting to see you kind of come full circle like that because, like, I've seen pictures on your Instagram of you, like, you're, like, obviously friends with Lars Fredrickson now. And I remember, like, like literally, like, 20 years ago, you and I were at a, a show in Toronto that, like, Branson and AFI and a couple other bands played. And it's just crazy to see you like come full circle yeah, and be friends was, with all these uh, bands now, you know. Not El Combo, like Reverb or Government or Cool. I can't remember. all those clubs change names, but yeah. So L Lars and I both got stuck in Boston for the the COVID thing because Old Firm Casuals was supposed to play, and he's he was going to play solo with Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols one night, and I was playing the St. Patrick's Day show. Uh, all, all these are supporting Jobkick Murphys in Boston for their, their hometown St. Patrick's Day shows. So it was kind of surreal to be, you know, in this situation with someone um, who, when I was a kid, I would spend my paperboy money, you know, buying, buying their records. And now we're kind of talking about, hey, how are we going to get home and what's going on? And some of our guys are stuck at this airport and the whole logistics of this unprecedented COVID situation. But I guess kind of sticking with your timeline, um, Andrew Case is another artist I'm not really well, familiar with. Um, what can you tell me about that? Let me lay some foundation for you. Um, w Western New York, and when I say Western New York, I, you know, I'm talking about Buffalo and all the surrounding areas. Um, there's certain people that are gems, you know, where, where the community is just very lucky to have them. Like Bill Page is a gem. Doug White is a gem. Uh, Andrew Case is a true gem to the Western New York uh, music scene and just Western New York in general. Um, he's a longtime musician. He was in some great bands, The Great Train Robbery, which was a, uh, a legendary Buffalo band, uh, The Outer Circle Orchestra, also known as OCO. And I had met Andrew through a mutual friend of ours, Chris Malakowski, Big up to Chris, who was in, is in another Buffalo institution, the Wolf Tickets. And we had started playing shows with them at Mohawk um, and Tudor Lounge. And Chris, Chris puts on the Strummerville shows every year. Um, and we had got together to do a punky reggae party. And that's kind of how Andrew came into the fold. And Andrew ended up being a fill-in drummer for our Arizona-California tour with Chosen Ones. And that's kind of where we really, truly bonded. Uh, so he had asked me to play bass in a group he was getting together for this town ballroom gig. And um, that's kind of how that's kind of how we did that gig for Strummerville at Town Ballroom. Um, and I'm hoping that we can figure out a logistics with him that he can i can get him on my session with mackie because andrew is like a, a a rasta elder of wisdom and everything he touches is just better 
better because of it. So I'm, I'm really hoping we can get him on the, the Mackie reggae session that I'm doing and um, get him some more exposure in the punk and hardcore world because of that. Yeah, and again, to, to be pretty envious of you, I, I like how you just casually throw in that you're doing a reggae session with Mackie too, uh, which obviously we'll talk more about reggae in a second. But again, sticking with the timeline, so Boston's come up quite a bit in this interview uh, so far. Obviously, you've got some pretty good ties with those guys. Um, so let's talk about okay, the Van Darkbuster uh, a little bit. Let me let me uh, put some more bricks in our foundation here. So Hudson Falcons did a <laughs> – yeah. Uh, I have an uncle. <laughs> I have two uncles. Well, I have more than two uncles, but I have one that lives in Boston and one that lives in Providence. And the majority of my family is in the New York City area, and that's where both my parents grew up. So I've always been going to New England and New York multiple times a year my whole life. Um, and the Falcons did a split seven inch with Blood for Blood on Flat Records, which was Ken Casey from Dropkick Murphy's record label. So that's that, you know, aside from just knowing the, the band, that's the uh, that's kind of one of the origins of the connection in Boston, as well as meeting Rob Lynn's brother, Mark Lynn, when his band Ducky Boys opened up for High Standard from Japan and No Effects at the Fun House in Lackawanna. Uh, and I must have been 15 or 16, because uh, that's the first night that I met Pub, too. So I'd always kind of been going to shows in Boston, especially bands like Tommy and the Terrors. And uh, when I lived in Providence for a while, I definitely hit, like, the living room and, um, you know, shows that were happening at the, all around that time. And I was a fan of Darkbuster. Um, but as far as how I joined Darkbuster, they had been done for a while. The, the, you know, the original lineup had been broken up and I, I actually don't even really know the reason why, but I know that they were, the band was coming back together and I got a call from Johnny Rio, um, the big bro who was in the bruisers and street dogs. And he said that Lenny needed a guy, uh, to, to play bass. Um, he couldn't do it. And would I want to go do this this European tour with Darkbuster, and I, I, I don't remember who else was. I, it was Slapshot or some other band, but MAD was going to bring us over. Um, and did I want to play bass? And at the time, I was going through a horrible depression because of a breakup. So that was, you know, some some saving grace light for me. And although the MAD Europe tour never happened, the the comeback shows in Boston did, and that was life changing for me. And um, I'm Team Lenny forever. I still play with Lenny when he needs. And um, yeah, I have nothing but love for the Boston scene. The lineup of the second version has been pretty consistent as far as the core rhythm section. You know, we've had, we, we have various players for horns and organ, um, but it's pretty much the same guys all the time. Um, but yeah, that's the group that I was with in Boston that we were supposed to play the uh, House of Blues show supporting Dropkicks on St. Patrick's Day this year. I imagine that that was a pretty bad experience. Obviously, like you've been referencing getting stuck there, but I also imagine that playing that show would have been a, a pretty crazy experience too. I've seen pictures, again, of you uh, playing songs with Dropkick Murphys online. And again, that, my, my jaw almost hit the floor because I couldn't believe it. It wasn't planned for. And again, it was more of a helping out a friend deal. Um, and I had a couple hours notice, so... If I'm remembering correctly, um, we were in Atlanta playing the Tabernacle. Uh, it was drop, uh, Darkbuster Tiger Army Dropkicks was the tour. And um, Kenny had hurt his hand. You know, he's real involved in boxing and, 
he's an active guy and he was having some issues with his hand. And I believe the surgeon was telling him, you know, not to play bass as much. So he had asked if I would fill in on a few songs because they had had a couple guys on the tour that were going to learn a couple songs. And that way it wasn't like one person that was responsible for learning the whole set or whatnot. Uh, so I ended up playing three songs a night for the majority of the rest of that tour. And that was an amazing experience. Um, that was a lot of fun, something that I'll cherish forever. So I guess we, we pretty much just have one more piece of your musical history to talk about before we start getting into other topics. Um, so in recent years, you've kind of been doing the DJ thing a little bit. How did that all start? Yeah, I don't really know how it started. I think, I think um, you know, I had always kind of been aware of DJs, specifically hip-hop DJs, um, from a local weekly called Baby Steps at Broadway Joe's. Uh, again, that's, it, it has to do with the record store scene. So I think my first local hip hop show was probably at Showplace. And I want to say it was like a group called Upstate and the Insomniacs. And there was a lot of people there. I was still in high school. Um, so I always kind of had, um, exposure to the DJing thing, but I worked at a nightclub for many years, various nightclubs doing the doorman thing in between tours to bring money in. And one of the places was called Allen Street Hardware. Um, and there was a pair of DJs there, uh, Scott Down and Tommy Derringer, which many people know now uh, Derringer as being one of the main guys behind the Griselda movement. So that's kind of when I first really started to pay attention to, to DJing. Now, these guys, I mean, I remember working the door, I would help, help Tommy carry his records and open, you know, hold the doors open. So these guys were bringing crates and turntables and mixers. Um, every Friday and Saturday, they had a residency. So I was really lucky to, to see how they did it. And they're both, they're, they're both geniuses musically in their own right. Um, but one thing about Tommy uh, Derringer that, that, that always stood out in my mind was he would transition this kind of nine to 11 o'clock dinner hour into into full-blown hip-hop night and and it made so much sense man he he would go from jazz and he would just bring you right in um and his transitions were amazing his selection was always phenomenal uh and he was always kind of like the cool laid-back guy and scott was the, the the loud personality duo but that there is probably when i first really started taking notice of dj culture and i got a shout out uh Dave G and EVR at the pink. I got to shout out DJ universal. Um, I, you know, the, I know I'm going to forget. I got to shout out Cutler. I got to shout out low pro, uh, big up to Dovey. Uh, I know, um, I know there's going to be a bunch I'm forgetting. Please, please forgive me. Um, yeah. So I think I started DJing. My first night was a punk night that me and pub did at, um, my friend Jesse's club, Diablo, which is downtown on Washington Street by uh, Mohawk Place. So we would do a punk night. And really, it was just an excuse to hang out and get everyone together. And uh, we would play all kinds of punk and oi and hardcore. Um, and then later, I had my own Culture Clash nights, which was a mix of reggae, soul, and ska. And I had some residencies at Hardware. And um, I had a, a semi-regular gig at Blue Monk in Elmwood Village. Um, and all the while that that stuff's going on, 
I was also doing um, support stuff for, you know, for shows. Um, and I, I was real lucky that I got to do a lot of stuff in Toronto. Toronto has always been a second home for me. And my favorite, my favorite experience DJing ever was uh, opening up for the legendary Toots and the Maytails at a sold out Danforth show. Uh, that was like a religious experience for me. Uh, I got to do Belle Biv DeVoe at Canal Side uh, Outdoors in Buffalo. That was a lot of fun. Uh, DJing with my big bro Rico and going out to Hooligan Holiday. That's always a blast. Nothing but love for Rico. Um, and also on the same note, um, one of the best nights I ever had was DJing with Big Pete Morsi for his Brass City Boss Sounds night um, out in Connecticut. And that was a blast, too. So right now, as we speak, I'm getting ready to do my first real live stream DJ event this Saturday. Um, and I'm just kind of keeping my fingers crossed because the, the technology gap, or excuse me, the learning curve with the technology gap is something that I know a lot of guys in my age range are trying to figure out. Um, but I'm looking forward to doing more DJing stuff in the future. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's funny. You've mentioned the, the technology gap and the learning curve. Uh, obviously, as you and I have been discussing the last couple of weeks, I, I've had some of those things kind of going on with this podcast. But I just want to back it up a little bit and say that, you know, it's really dope that you were able to kind of have those experiences, seeing, seeing Danger kind of building up there. And, and obviously, you and oh, I have absolutely. talked off there about, you know, what big fans we are of the Griselda movement. I can't tell you how happy and proud I am to see those guys succeed and put that Buffalo flag all over the place and put some respect on our name too, which is something I don't think people realize, but you know, um, my, my, my favorite forever was Conway. And now I'm kind of going back and forth between Conway and Benny, but I'm curious to hear what, who your favorite is. A hundred percent Benny the butcher. I mean, obviously I'm not hating on any other guys in the clique because you know, West side gum was the one that first introduced me to him because, uh, action Bronson, I'm sure you probably like him too. He was talking about West Side Gun in an interview a few years ago, and, and so I first checked out West Side Gun, and then I, I started listening to the other guys, and I just love those guys because it's it's real shit, man. You know what I mean? It's it's gritty. Those those guys didn't have some plug, you know. All of them pretty much did stater fed time, and they were knocking on doors for years before people finally started paying attention. I remember seeing uh, West Side Gun at a. Uh, a mob deep Smith and Wesson show at uh, the evening star concert hall. And the reason why he caught my attention is because he was wearing a bomber jacket with a Confederate flag and a ghostbusters patch. And I'm like, and it like, I am like, what the fuck is this? And it kind of hit me with that Sid vicious energy, you know, that shock value. And okay, I'm paying attention now because my, my eyes and my brain are kind of short circuiting, you know? And that's kind of when I first really, started taking notice to what he was doing. And I got to tell you, man, um, I, I love what those guys are doing. They've been phenomenal for Buffalo and I, uh, and I wish them longevity and success. I hope that, I hope that the seeds they plant birth more seeds. And, and just to kind of shift gears, that's probably the last non-hardcore punk thing that I'll bring up for a little while is, you know, I think it's really cool that you're doing all the reggae stuff too. Cause like I was telling you, and I won't be able to name nearly as many artists as you, but I've gotten more into like the dance hall reggae stuff in recent years. And I was even telling you that I got that Chronix album on vinyl last week. And, you know, I tried playing it for my son and he, he was cool with it for like 30 seconds. And then of course he was like, ah, Muppet show, you know? So, but it's still cool to, to I think that that's like, it'd be cool to had taken to see Chronix live one day. The reggae thing, it's not as distant as you would think. Let's go back to the first Clash record where they, you know, um, White Man and Hammersmith Palais. There it is. 
Dillinger and Leroy Smart, Delroy Wilson, your cool operator. I mean, the blue Joe Strummer gave us the blueprint. Um, Junior Mervin, Police and Thieves, the, 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 the Clash, Culture, Two Sevens Clash, Under Heavy Manners, Prince Farai, Guns of Brixton, Brixton Academy. You know, it's all right there. You just got to peel back the layers. And another brand where you don't have to peel back the layers at all that, that Brendan and I were talking about in his interview, which will be coming out after yours, um, Bad Brains. You know, I mean, that, that hardcore and reggae mixed together pretty much. I mean, and that's like my favorite band. I mean, Bad Brains, aside from all their accomplishments in the punk and hardcore world, they absolutely exposed a gigantic population of people to reggae that never would have been otherwise. So there you go. Yeah, so I think people could probably hear us talk about, about uh, you know, reggae and hip-hop all night long, and, and I think you and I would both have no problem doing that. But uh, this is mainly like a hardcore and uh, punk interview, I guess. So let's kind of shift gears back to what we were originally talking about. Um, so let's go back and kind of talk about uh, all the shows you booked over the years. Yeah, so my first show was a Food Not Bombs benefit at the Showplace Theater. Uh, I was 16 years old. And thinking about it now, it's just mind-blowing to me that a teenager in the 90s could accomplish such a task. I mean... You know, we had a, a, an ad in Art Voice, and we had like 10 bands play. And the, the logistics that went into show promoting at that time was just out of control. It wasn't this plug-and-play social media setup, you know. And I, I know you know all about that. And I, I give a lot, of, a lot of credit to everyone with the DIY ethic that, that even attempted to book anything. Um, so that was my first experience, doing, doing the Food Not Bombs benefit. And I had bands from as far away as Virginia, uh, all over New York. Um, that, that was, I know Strong Intention played, The Dents, The End, a couple other bands. I'd be honest with you, I'd have to look at the flyer to remember now. But that was the classic thing where I hand drew a map on the flyer. I put my, my <laughs> phone number on it, you know, um, embarrassing grammatical errors. But uh, what, what was the first show that you booked? I mean, I booked a few local shows because I was in bands back then, but the the first actual, like, hardcore punk show I booked, um, Bill, uh, Bill Page's band Lockjaw played. And you speaking of directions, it's actually funny because it was Lockjaw and uh, Sirhan, which was Andy Williams and, and oh, Red yeah. Boy, who, was also, who used to be in Every Time I Die, uh, and a bunch of other dudes. Uh, I can't remember what local bands played, but I know there was at least two local bands on the bill. But what's funny about that show is that was like kind of far away from Rochester, like like 15 or 20 miles away in a town called Riverton, where actually my sister, oddly enough, lives now. Um, but again, that was like pre-internet era. So I had to just like bust out a map and kind of figure out the direction. So I, I hand wrote the directions on the flyer. And I remember to this day, this girl, Andrea, came up to me like because they, they got there like an hour after the show started. She was like, great directions. And then... Um, <laughs> Sirhan, Sirhan couldn't even find the place. They finally got there literally right after a lockjaw finished and we were already cleaning up and everything. And I remember it's, it's still funny to me to this day. And me and Ben Keith still kind of talk about this sometimes. Um, Derek, who sang for Sirhan, he also sang for Pray to the Lifeless. He walks in and he's like, the show's over. And I'm like, yeah, sorry, man. He's like, what the fuck, man? And then literally right after that, he's like, well, how was the show? Like it was just like he's all he's all pissed about it, and then all of a sudden he just wants to like talk about how the show was, you know. But those yeah. those were the days, man. You know, the '90s when we didn't have like I think MapQuest was still kind of new. There was no Google Maps, you know. It was kind of real DIY. And you kind of just had to figure things out for yourself. 
And no, nobody wanted to let a 16 year old punk kid book a show. I mean, I mean, I've booked all over the place, you know, um, Showplace, Mohawk, VFW Halls, Continental, Waiting Room. Um, I, I don't even know. I, I know I'm going to forget a bunch of places, but I, I remember doing one VFW Hall. I mean, literally, we would just go through the phone book and call anywhere and, and anywhere that would answer the phone that wouldn't hang up. And you might get beyond, you know, okay, the date's available. Okay, you want to have bands play. And then you get to the question, well, what do the bands sound like? <laughs> you know, and you, know, you can't you can't say that you're going to book a punk or a hardcore show. They hang up on you. You also can't tell them how old you are. So I would just say it's like heavy rock, you know. And um, I remember calling like literally calling like 30, 40 places and finally finding one VFW hall, which was the old Lakeview Smorgasbord. I forgot what it's called now uh, or at the time, but it was across from JP's pub pubs pub so shout out to jp's pub and everything was cool they were gonna let me do the show and then the, you know someone piped in and said well the last bands we played here the people wrecked the bathroom so we're not going to have music anymore and um most people i think would have given up but for whatever reason i was ocd and i was determined to make it happen so i uh, i contacted a buddy of mine who had a, a relative in waste management and i negotiated um, them lock in the bathrooms and I would have my friend's family member drop off two porta potties. And so no one would use the bathroom. And those, those are the kind of things that we would have to do in order to make the show happen, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. And, and tracing back to, you were asking me what my first shows I booked were that I was in a band called Bob Barker and the Womanizers, which was a really terrible punk band, but we had fun doing it. Um, and we legitimately at least twice in order to get shows around town, uh, we, we gave them a, a demo tape of a different band. I don't remember what band it was, but it definitely wasn't us because they, there's no way they would have let us play if they heard what we sounded like. So we gave them like a fake demo tape and we ended up getting the shows based off of some other bands and music. So shout out to whatever band that was. Huh. Um, what, a, what are some of the favorite, what are some of the favorite bands for you that you've booked? I know I have my list. I've always been curious to know what your list is. Oh man, you really put me on the spot now. Um, Definitely carry on. Um, definitely terror, just because of what a good frontman Vogel is. Um, but there's also bands that like weren't as prolific in the scene that were just like, you know, interesting things. Like they'd be interesting personalities. Like there was a band from Philly called Go for the Throat. And I have no idea what those guys are up to now, but the singer Colin was just a really interesting guy. And and, and just bands like that, like them, Strong Intention. Like just bands where you know they might not be my favorite band musically, but the people in the band like made it worthwhile, you know. And right. Like so, that the, so the the experiences, yeah. Um, I mean, I've been really lucky in the sense that I've gotten to book a lot of bands that I loved. You know, Agnostic Front, Sheer Terror, Madball, Crow Mags, uh, Infrared, Super Yab. Um, I mean, a lot of I've gotten to, to book a lot of bands that that I truly love, but also I've gotten to to meet and maintain and develop a lot of lifelong friendships from booking shows and it really kind of helped you develop your own Rolodex network um, of this scene. So I don't do it anymore. It's an awful lot of work. Um, it's very difficult. It's, it's not the same thing that it used to be, but I do commend and take my hat off to anyone who is still putting the work into 
to, to book and produce shows. I've always admired people that had to think outside the box and create, create moments of opportunity just to achieve the goal of, of getting the show done. Uh, Cause it really is a lot of work. There's a lot of variables. There's an insane amount of logistics. And, and most of the people that first get involved with booking on a DIY level, they really make a lot of the basic mistakes. Like I know for me, the whole PA thing, I didn't even know how, I didn't, I didn't know what a PA was or what having certain mics on boot, on certain stands was, or, you know, equipment needed to plug it in in a basement or whatnot. And uh, that was, that was a big learning curve for me. And I was just wondering if you had any situations in your early years of booking where there was some, some real kind of like MacGyver-esque moments where you had to just make it happen. Yeah, you know, there definitely was. And, and like I said, it goes back to, we were talking earlier about the, the underage thing. Uh, it goes back to that, I think, with, with me. When I first started booking shows, like I had said, I was only, you know, 16 or 17. So a lot of times I would have to, to rent PAs and you had to be 21 to rent the PA or you needed a credit card. And I had neither of those. So a lot of times I would take my, I'd have my sister take me down there to rent the PA. Um, and a couple things happened that I probably won't really talk <laughs> about on this episode because, you know, there was, uh, you know, stuff that we don't really want on this episode. But um, so I was kind of nervous that the PA might not work when I brought it back. Um, but luckily that never happened. But um, I guess the only other thing that I, I got lucky with was uh, later on, uh, one of my first roommates, uh, Dustin, he actually owned a PA. And that was when I was like 19. So he ended up kind of just uh, like being like the house sound man for, for most of our hardcore shows at like VFW halls and stuff because he would just bring the PA and kind of set everything up. So uh, shout out to Dustin Payad, definitely a good dude. Um, but yeah, I guess kind of getting back away from the show booking aspect, um, we, we had talked about you, you kind of filling in for agnostic front on some Canadian shows, but you've also had some other really good experiences with them. So I'd kind of love to hear something about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, the, the AF thing happened through, through my friend, Amanda, who was working for the band, um, at the time and she was doing a lot of tour management for uh, bands like um, H2O and The Business. And um, I believe, if my memory serves me correct, we met at Showplace and she was working the anti-racist action literature table or so something along those lines. But I don't really remember how it happened. I just know that um, she invited me to go on like an uh, extended weekend run um, that she was doing with Agnostic Front, and me being so young at that time, I was like, absolutely. So that was that was it, and uh, that that's where um, I, I met I met those guys. Um, and af after doing a couple small trips with her, um, then I went out and did like my first real formal full U.S. tour with them. And I want to say, man, I, I I don't know how old I was really. I think I think like those weekend shows was two thousand one. Because the first full U U.S. tour was 2002, um, so yeah, I think I, I think I met them like around 2001. Um, as far as working for them, I did I did meet those guys a couple times before at uh, El Macambo. And matter of fact, you might have been at that show because I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that was Agnostic Front, King Size Braces, No Warning, and Shark Attack. You might have to get gavel on this uh, podcaster or, or Ben and uh, have them confirm that. But I think that was the first night that I had actually ever met them. But yeah, that, that was the initial in introduction. 
you know, it's funny because I definitely remember the show you were talking about, but I actually wasn't at that show. Um, and obviously, it would be great to have a No Warning guys on here and, and chop it up about the old the old memories of them. However, I can kind of timeline it for you a little bit, too. I don't know if you remember this show because I think you were there. Um, and we won't really dive down this rabbit hole too far. But I uh, with with uh, Mr. Rick to life there with all the, the bad stuff he's done recently. But but back then he was singing for Come and Correct. And I did a basement show there where um, some of the guys from Borrowed Times old band Something Sacred played. And I actually lost a tooth at that show. And I remember afterwards, you and I were talking and you were like, dude, I'm going on tour with Agnostic Front. And I almost didn't believe you at the time. I was like, I was like, is this for real? And you were like, yeah, yeah, it really is. And like, you know, I honestly didn't see you again for a few months after that. And I think the next time I actually saw you after that might have even been uh, Hellfest 2002 when the Cro-Mags played. Wow. You just, uh, yeah, there's a lot going on with what you just said there. Um, I remember that show because I, I think that was like, with uh, Dom and Nick, uh, big up to those guys, uh, Slumlords Dom. Uh, I, I remember I had my, my Lincoln at the time with the air ride, and I, and I used to love just driving anywhere, especially if there was a show going on. Um, but, yeah, that, that was the thing. Uh, Nick and Dom and I, we're going to go to Europe with that. And um, it was, so it was either that or go on the, the full U.S. tour with Agnostic Front uh, TSOL, the casualties in Rise Against. Uh, so I went on tour with Agnostic Front, and uh, that's probably one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. But definitely, because I feel like that actually opened up a lot of doors for you. I mean, obviously, like you said, you had toured with the Hudson Falcons before that, but I, I think you would probably agree with me that, that going on that first initial tour with Agnostic Front kind of opened up you know, a lot of opportunities that you're kind of still experiencing to this day. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine what my life would have been like without without those relationships, especially at that age, you know, because, I, you know, truth be told, Josh, I uh, um, at that time, I wasn't really feeling awesome about what's going on in Buffalo, you know, and um, I always kind of it, it wasn't until I, I really um, got together with 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 some other people. And we started doing our own thing. I, I, I kind of, I kind of felt a lot of shade from a lot of, a lot of the so-called movers and shakers in Buffalo and to be able to, to go out with a legendary band. Um, I mean, aside from the, the, the culture and, and, and the music, just the, the life experience for a 19 year old kid or 18, I don't 18, probably 19. I want to say, um, I, I can't, exp I can't explain what, what, what that was like, you know? Um, those, those van rides to me were always amazing because, um, just, just being a, a fly on the wall for the conversations, you, you know, you really get an in-depth look at, at, at this, this thing that we love, you know? Yeah, definitely. And those agnostic front guys have definitely put their time, uh, in, in hardcore and, and other styles of music, obviously. So, uh, I'm guessing those are, those are guys that you, you still keep in touch with and probably talk to, uh, almost every oh, day still it, then, that, right? That's found That's foundation family, bro. I, I mean, I, the, those guys are like blood to me. I, I have nothing but love and respect for those guys. I mean, you got the, the, the thing that I don't think people realize about that connection is at the time, there was a lot of people in Buffalo that were kind of shitting on me. And then all of a sudden, um, staying with stigma on the lower east side walking to cbgb's because there's an af sunday matinee so it was completely life-changing for me you know um and uh af helped me out with a lot of confidence they schooled me they schooled me on a lot of life and, and music stuff I, I got the privilege of hearing a lot of gems from those guys 
Um, and I got to have a phenomenal experience um, that, that you're right. I am still enjoying to this day. Uh, I, I, yeah, I love AF. I, that's what it is, you know? <laughs> so do you have any special moments or times that stick out for you over the years of being on tour with Agnostic Front? Wow. Um, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot in there. Uh, definitely all the time I spent at CBGB's. I mean, you don't get any more classic than Agnostic Front on a Sunday hardcore show at CBGB's. Uh, I feel real lucky to be able to have caught the, the, the last part of the Lower East Side still having a, a, a really amazing scene. Um, that, you know, staying with Stigma in Little Italy for all those years consistently. Um, some of the most special times, in my, some of the most fun I've ever had in my life. Um, the Fiend Fest tour we did with Jerry only. There's the Misfits when it was Jerry, Marky, Ramon, and Dez. And that tour was like, a, I think it was a six-week tour. It had the Damned, the Dickies, Agnostic Front, DI, and Balzac from Japan. And that was, that was a lot of fun. Uh, it was Coletti, Gallo, Stigma, and me, and Roger. Um, and that was the time of my life because I got to lift weights every day with Jerry only and watch Marky Ramon play drums and see the damned every night. Uh, and me and Gallo, we, we really bonded on that tour. And I, I love that guy like, like, like a big brother. And um, he really kind of took me under his wing and taught me a lot of things. And we had a lot of laughs and, you know, Coletti's a lunatic. I, I, I love him. I hope he's doing well. And I can't say enough about, about uh, Roger and, and Vinny. Um, I don't know where I'd be without those guys in my life. I got nothing but love for them. Uh, also on that tour, it was pretty cool because in, uh, at Asbury Park uh, in Jersey, uh, Freddie was there and him and Roger did a song together. And that was the first time that I had seen Roger and Freddie do a song together. And um, for those that are familiar with Asbury Park and the Stone Pony area, there's, there's a lot of venues. And also, I think playing the next day was, was Damian Marley um so there was like a lot of different kinds of people hanging out um in asbury park uh for 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 those two days and that, that was that was a blast um and honestly um seeing the documentary and seeing them portrayed at such a high quality level really really was a big deal for me um i'm really happy to see all the success that they've achieved um and i don't know where we're going to go from here with shows but I know that AF is going to lead the way for sure. So I'm uh, nothing but love and respect for AF. You know, you're talking about being at CBGB's and, and being at those Asbury Park shows. It, again, it kind of makes me a little envious because one, one thing that I've always regretted is that I never made it to a show at CBGB's. And there were definitely shows that I could rattle off that I, that I wanted to go to. That I just didn't have the chance or didn't think I had the chance to. Um, luckily, I've gotten to go to New York City a couple of times for hardcore shows since then. But yeah. like you said, like CBGB is, CBGB is like, you know, it's, it's an institution. Um, so, but what I'm, what I'm getting at though is like, I kind of have a dream list in my head of like bands that I would love to have seen in their prime or just, or just that I didn't get to see. Um, and you've obviously seen a lot of bands at this point, but do you have like a, a wish list still in your head of bands that you haven't seen that you'd like to see? Or like if you could see a band in that era? Oh man, Warzone. Number one, Warzone. 
never got to see Warzone. Um, you know, uh, I mean, of course, the Clash, but I, I don't know if you're looking for like realistic possibilities or just all time uh, wish list here. Probably Clash, Warzone, Peter Tosh. Those would be my big three. My list in my head is usually hardcore bands. Like, obviously, I mean, I've seen the Bad Brains play like a song and a half, but like seeing them in their in their original era would have been great. And actually, one band that I never really thought of until until you know you talk about different styles of music that I would love to have seen that my sister got to see uh, was Nirvana. Um, I don't know about you, but for me, Nirvana definitely was like an introduction to a lot of these different kinds of styles of music for me. So it would have been really cool to have seen them play when, like when they played in Buffalo or whatever. Yeah, I'm sure Galvin can tell you all about that because as as he will, he will tell you that he went to see the Meat Puppets um, open. Oh, you know, I liked Nirvana for a little while. And they're definitely a band that um, you know crossed a lot of a lot of worlds over, but the, I don't think they'd even be in my top twenty list. You know, there's there's a lot of other. But I'd love to see Undertones. Um, you know, I, I'm very lucky that I've gotten to see most of the bands that I've, I've ever really loved, but there's still a few, you know? Yeah, definitely. No. And I, I would, I would honestly probably put the clash on there too. Now that you think of, now that you mentioned, it, I hadn't really thought about them, but they're definitely a band that, that it would have been great to have seen live. Um, but yeah, I guess kind of switching gears to what you've been doing a little more currently. Um, I know, I know you've been living in Austin, Texas. Um, you know, what was that experience like? Yeah. So, um, I mean, Austin, Texas is where, where I'm at, I'm, I'm, I'm in Hawaii now on an uh, extended trip, just kind of taking a break from the mainland. Um, but I've been in Austin a couple of years and, um, musically, I think the coolest thing I've seen is that Flamingo Cantina and they have a really great reggae scene there. Um, there's two bands that I like a lot, Mau Mau Chaplains and a band called Lion Heights. And right now during the whole COVID thing, those guys are teaming up and doing a weekly Wednesday night live stream, uh, which is easily accessible off the Flamingo Cantina um, Facebook page. And I've gotten a chance to see a lot of great reggae legends perform there. Uh, and I, I sat in once and got the jam of Gregory Isaac's tune with those guys. And um, a lot of them are helping me kind of cultivate ideas and possibilities with uh, this Mackie session that I got going. So, um, and big up to dangerous sound too, but yeah, Austin's, Austin's an interesting place. Um, um, you know, we'll see what happens in the future. If I end up going back there or staying here. All right. So obviously you've become pretty well traveled over the years. Um, you know, going from Buffalo to, to touring and then living in Austin for a while. And, and now you're, you're chilling in Hawaii for a little while there. Um, so kind of give everybody an idea what you got going on currently. Well, currently, I think I'm in the position that everyone's in, which is we're going to wait and see how current events play out. I mean, it's not like you can go tour. Um, I think you can, if you can do remote recording in a socially distant, safe way, you could put out a record given all the recording software now. But um, the Mark Miller book is a focus that I have going on right now because that's something that we can continue to, to push and pursue and, and work along with um, regardless of the, the pandemic and the, the current Black Lives Matter um, movement. So other than that, I'm going to be focused on the Mackie session and finding players that can um, 
essentially self-record their parts and send me the stems. And my goal is to get that project tracked and then send it off to um, a, a, a serious a pro studio and have someone there mix and master it. So I guess that question I have about the Mackie project then, you, you've kind of you know referenced it a little bit, but do you guys have like set in mind what you're going to do with it? Like, is it going to be like an LP or is it just kind of you guys are just recording and seeing where it goes? So at this point, it's just uh, a, 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 rough, a rough rhythm section session. It's drums and bass and maybe a little guitar and some stuff. Um, but we locked out Nova Studios in Staten Island, which was Steven Seagal's former dojo. Uh, and sick of it all had recorded there. That's why, that's how I heard of it. And, um, my buddy, Jerry, who actually, oddly enough, used to book dark buster. He engineered the session cause he had, had did the sick of it all record. Uh, and shout out to, to my boy, Craig, uh, committee represent right here. He, he put me in touch and, um, Mac and I went out there for two days and Lenny came out for the second day. And, um, I basically ran a bunch of rhythms with Mac and tracked a bunch of drums and now I'm taking those drums and I'm putting the, the song arrangements and the vocals on them. And as far as, you know, if there was a goal for a release, there's really not. It's just a pure passion project of songs I wanted to do. And I think once, once I finish it, then I'm going to kind of have a better understanding of what I'm, you know, what might, what might be the best thing to do with it, you know? All right. So do you have any other current projects or anything else you're working on that you want to plug right now? Yeah, so Lenny and I have two things going. Uh, we shot an amazing video at the historic Riviera Theater in North Tonawanda, New York, um, where they have one of the OG Wurlitzers. And boy, is that just an, uh, that place has a serious, serious vibe to it. I'm really excited about this video. Uh, I want to thank Neil for helping us out with that. I want to thank my boy Nick for flying the drone and helping us with the footage. I want to thank Lance, who came out and took some awesome still photography. I'm really excited about that one. Uh, the Riviera in North Tonawanda. Um, it's, it's a beautiful theater. Go check it out when they reopen. Uh, we also have a, a single seven inch that we're recording right now for our brother Rico and his boss hooligan label. Uh, if you don't know Rico and you're not familiar with his social media, go check him out at boss hooligan vintage shop. Um, I'm not sure what the status of his store is, but, uh, he has a brick and mortar culture shop that is phenomenal. Um, and that's going on. The Mackie projects going on. Um, Benny, uh, from Falcons and chosen ones. He has an Americana full length that I'm, I'm working with him on. And we're going to bring our boy, Mike Bialek from King size braces, uh, who's now a phenomenal tattooer in Canada. We're going to bring him into the fold as well. Um, yeah. And that's about it for the time being. Oh, this Saturday, uh, live from Honolulu, I'm going to be DJing the Sailor Jerry Festival. Um, this is the sixth annual. Um, we're right across the street from his original shop. And because of the COVID situation, it's going to be 100% live stream. Um, there's going to be a variety of entertainment. Uh, if you follow 808 Shows, that's the YouTube channel, 808 Shows, and also uh, Jason underscore 808 on Instagram, you can get all the links to the times in your area because we're in Hawaii. So right now we're six hours behind New York and he's going to post up all the times for, um, I think London and West coast, um, and, J and Japan too. So I'm looking forward to that. We got some bands playing that. That'll be, uh, 
this Saturday, and um, we'll, we'll 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 put the link in so people can find it. Um, but other than that, I'm looking forward to learning more about the live streaming thing and trying to figure out a way to uh, to play some music and and showcase some some other bands, um, and you know use my platform to keep involved because even just like doing this podcast with you, man, with everything going on in the world, um, it feels good to talk to some people, especially after having been quarantined for so long, you know? Like I referenced in the beginning of the interview, I ran into my buddy Jim tonight and, you know, it was just good to see like a friend like face to face. I mean, granted, we kind of kept our distance because of everything that's going on, but, you know, it's just cool to have that personal interaction again because I think that's been kind of lost throughout all of this. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I would I would suggest anyone who uh, is at home to download that free OBS software because it's there's a lot of YouTube tutorials. It's not that hard to learn how to use. And um, you can really up your communication IQ pretty quickly. There's a lot of great tools out there. We just got to learn how to use them. There's a lot that I still want to learn, obviously, like we were talking about before. I mean, you know, all this stuff kind of came new to me. It was something that kind of happened out of necessity because, like I told you, and not to really get too deep into the rabbit hole, but like obviously I've kind of had my struggles with sobriety and stuff like that. And that's kind of what brought this whole podcast about. But at the same time, it was also something that, that you and I have talked about off air that it's something that's kind of needed around here is somebody to kind of do like a history, you know, and, and there's an Instagram that has like Rochester hardcore history and I'm sure Buffalo has one too. But to me, it's just kind of like doing these interviews and kind of like putting it all documented, like for people to hear like, like what's happened over the years in Buffalo and Rochester is, is something that's been really fun to do. Yeah, I think it's a really important undertaking. I mean, you're giving people a platform to tell their story with no agenda. And um, there's there's not a lot of these available for our culture. So, I mean, I, I think anything that's honest and genuine, especially something that doesn't involve posting or, or something that's quick attention span. I mean, when you listen to a podcast, you have to dedicate some time. You have to kind of shut out from everything else and folk kind of like the way we use those in the records and hold up the artwork and read the lyrics to the song. And, you know, listening to a record wasn't just, it wasn't just some, something on in the background while we were scrolling, you know what I mean? And, and when I get into my podcasts, I, I like to get into that mindset with it. So I, and also between you and my boy, big truths podcast, the big truth podcast, um, every episode, even if it's someone I've known for 20 years, I always learn some new information or hear some, some story that I never knew about. And I always, it's always fascinating to me. So, so, so for that alone, um, you know, I, I think what you're doing is great. Yeah, obviously I appreciate hearing that. And, and obviously I've learned a lot from these people, you know, doing these interviews and, you know, I'm still learning a lot about the, the technical aspect of it, obviously, but you know, it's definitely been a good time. So I'm, I'm actually pretty much out of questions and, and topics, though. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to address that we didn't talk about or anything like that? Um, well, I'd like to uh, applaud you for being open with your sobriety and, and, and encourage you because I think that um, there's a whole community out there, especially in punk and hardcore. And if anyone, not just you, but anyone is ever feeling like they need to kind of tap that and they don't have anyone to talk to, um, you know, uh, I'm not sober, but if you hit me with a message, I'll, I can connect you to someone who is. And um, that's something that people need to, to not feel feel awkward about anymore. You know. So I, I applaud you for for your work and taking the steps in your life to improve it for for your family and loved ones. And um, 
Yeah, man. Uh, it's also great to reconnect with you to the podcast. Uh, that photograph you posted was, it, it kind of got me a little bit. It was like, damn, you know, that's <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> Made me feel a little bit old, you know? That's kind of where we're at now is, is it's just all the nostalgia has been going on these last couple of months. We've been trapped inside our houses. It's been nice to have things like that to kind of put a smile to our face and kind of remind, remind us of where we came from, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, thanks so much for having me on the podcast, man. Uh, I really, really appreciate you inviting me and um, uh, be interested to hear who you get on in the future. I've been listening to a few episodes so far and enjoying them. Uh, I think the Bill Page episode is my favorite so far. Uh, but yeah, man. All right, cool. So that wraps up episode 12. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, thanks to my family for all the support. Thanks to Ruben for doing the interview. And as always, you can find us on the web at enterprisehardcorepodcast.com.